Buglers, we are live from Leicester Square Theatre on the 16th of September with Chris Addison and Alice Fraser. It might be our only London date of the year, so get your tickets now. Oh, get them at thebuglepodcast.com. That, that bit's important. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This is a podcast from The Bugle. Catharsis, the process of releasing and thereby providing relief from strong or repressed emotions. I'm Tiff Stevenson, full-time comedian, part-time massively unqualified therapist for this podcast only. Each week I talk to a guest about small things or pet peeves, also old wounds that maybe need some healing. We'll dive into a topical gripe and a historical beef to see if we can provide some insight, but mainly some catharsis. You can sweat the small stuff with me. This week, what am I annoyed about? Well, judgment on the train. I'm happy about the fact that we, uh, you know, you can get on the train. We're not having to wear masks anymore because I'm able to partake in my favorite pastime, which is doing my makeup on the train because I'm always running late because who likes people that are prompt? Turns out everyone. Uh, But I got a lot of tutting last night on the train um, and it annoys me because as far as I'm concerned, when you see me do my makeup on the train, what you're witnessing is a magic transformation involving circus level skill. You are welcome. I get on the train as a shop sword six. I get off a nine. It's like stars in their eyes, but without the smoke machine. And you may think you've seen skill. You may have been to the Cirque du Soleil, but you haven't seen skill until you've seen a woman applying eyeliner as a train is breaking into the station. I can't do my mascara normally, though, because that involves me opening my mouth into a big O. And that is an invitation you do not want an RSVP. (laughs) (laughs) so like I skipped that bit but I it it reminded me um and I have talked about this before but in New York a few years back there were signs on the subway saying ladies do not put your makeup on on the train this is not a bathroom and I thought that's the least of your problems New York subway because sat opposite me was a man eating a hot dog and you've got rats carrying pizza up the stairs I don't think me putting on a bit of lippy and blusher is the problem on the train that's what I'm a bit pissed off about this week I'd like to share that with you, the listeners, and also my guests, because they say sharing is caring. A problem shared is a problem halved, and that's why I have a guest. And this week I'm joined uh, by my super guest, comedian and podcaster extraordinaire, keeping that circus theme going, it's Dane Baptiste. Hello, Dane. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Hello. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much for having me. I agree with you. I feel like... uh... The issue is not about women doing makeup on the train. It's about uh, capitalism and the need to be able to be prompt as well as presented to a much different standard than men. So 
You're like the problem. Yes. I think there should be Avon ladies that go down up and down trains, you know, like in the same <laughs> way with like snacks and stuff. There should yes. be able to be like makeup wipe or concealer, gloss. Yes, that would be a perfect idea. It is. It's ironic, isn't it, that the same people who are judging you on the train and the tra- same train sign telling you not to put your makeup on on the train, then right next to them are adverts for L'Oreal and Maybelline. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and, and if not, cosmetic surgery as well on top of that. So it's kind of like... Yes. So basically you're on the train as a woman and it's like, look at you, ugly piece of shit. Look at these adverts to fix yourself ugly. And then women go, okay, I'll make it safe on the train. That's disgusting. But if you don't have makeup, they'll go, up. Oh, Walk of shame. Look at yeah. this slut. <laughs> exactly. The first section of the show is called Old Grudges. So this is uh, where I ask my guests to bring a personal gripe with someone from work or from childhood or or something that happened, a conversation you had, an argument that you had, and you feel like you want to get it off your chest because you're not okay with it. And hopefully we can provide some catharsis. Let's air it. Let's air it out. It's good. I think it's very useful. And... Uh... I can't. I cannot uh, speak about the merit of this podcast theme enough. The only problem is, I feel like I don't have one person to direct that anger towards. Right. There's That's a, okay. There's an entire cabal of faces that I uh, <laughs> went to school with, that I have beef with, who I actually had the misfortune of having to see again a couple of weeks ago at a mutual friend's birthday party. Ah, old school friend. I bumped into an old school friend of mine last night. Fortunately, one that I like and get on with. But it can bring up a lot, right? Because you think you're a grown adult. You think you're fine in your life. And then all of a sudden you're confronted by a face that makes you feel like you're like, you know, 10 or 11 again. And you're in the playground and the worst day of your life is happening. What did they do to upset you? It's a litany of things. And I think the main overall thing that upsets me is the philosophical aspect of uh, their behavior. Because I cannot pinpoint what I could have done to uh, justify this kind of behaviour. But what I put it down to is that it's more of an ideology, uh, which uh, Frederick Douglass, abolitionist and philosopher, came up with crabs in a bucket. And I went to uh, a quite a nice school, actually, secondary school, surrounded by not-so-great schools and a somewhat much more dangerous environment for an adolescent to grow up in. But it was almost like my school was kind of a bubble inside of that where you didn't have to worry about being robbed or beaten up or stabbed in my school which was a, a very rare experience for a lot of my peers growing up in South East London. And I say that because I'm like, the people that I have this grudge with had no real reason to behave the way they behave. Now, outside of the school, you know, much more of a, it's much more of a, I guess, more of a game of survival and certain hostile behaviours that are not more normalised because people just have to kind of work out how they're going to adapt in that environment. They never had that. So they didn't have the excuse of saying, like, I came from poverty or I grew up in an estate or my father wasn't around. They had all these things. And they're still pricks. <laughs> so they're still still trying to establish a hierarchy, still trying to find some system Yeah, despite no need for a hierarchy, yeah. And it's like today when we have all these conversations about a lack of representation and a lack of cohesion, during our adolescent years, it would have been the perfect time to begin to crystallise that and it would have been benefiting us today. Whereas now it's now they're working backwards where now they want to have like whatsapp groups and share resources and information and help one another i'm like well had you done this at the time when you were kids you could have been enjoying it now but you were too busy being pricks over things like girls and it's girls you don't even respect (laughs) and don't even respect you and for me it's just a very massive frustrating thing where i'm like you know if you did this in any other school somebody would have stabbed you for this shit yes right the disrespect yeah i grew up in an environment like things as small as like in other schools or other environments you could get stabbed for someone stepping on your shoes. And for me, 
that's very intense. However people play that down, no one wants to live that way. Yes, yeah. So when you have the opportunity to not live that way, I would think you would grab it with both hands. But to somehow still establish like a hierarchy and still to be engaging in betrayal and disrespecting one another, when you know the risks outside of this bubble could lead to your demise, why would you behave this way? So it's just such a frustrating thing nowadays to people like, we should stick together. You should have stuck together 20 years ago, you fucking idiots. So... <laughs> And now they're at an age now where they're all going through a midlife crisis and stuff. And they're probably starting to see their dreams or aspirations either peter out or, you know, like they guess more than anything, they're just regular people. And I think a lot of people have to kind of get over this uh, need to censor yourself like when you're a teenager. It's almost like the way people behave on social media is that everything's kind of centered around them. And you think the world revolves around you because you become so, I guess, self-aware. And, you know, this is where we start exploring self-image and identity politics around your adolescent years and it's the same thing people do on social media and it's kind of like now i guess people realize that the world doesn't revolve around them and so they're having to deal with that existential crisis it'd be something as small as a girl from my school might be like i thought dame's quite nice and out of jealousy they won't say anything right so then i'm like okay so then fast forward years later she's alone you're not with her so nobody's one including you in this yes because of this fleeting point of your ego yes i just don't see the point and then people complain about things like a lack of social cohesion where it's like you had the opportunity to create this kind of cohesion and you didn't do it because of your selfishness. And, and friendship just... and brotherhood and all of that, but it didn't happen. Oh yeah, exactly. All the things that people yearn for nowadays and people are all trying to find groups to identify with is like, you could have been doing this as teenagers. Now you're in, relative, in relatively different environments where people don't care about you are, who you are or whatever social standard you think you had within school. You don't have that now yeah. because no one cares. No, but you and now peaked, you go home depressed. The phrase is yeah, you peaked, peaked at high, at high school. school. Yeah. <laughs> this is it. And, that, and that's pretty much it. There's people that peaked at high school. And I think we all know a lot of people like that. People that peaked at high school. It's just so frustrating I, I, it's such, it's because I think it's such a nuanced thing where it's like now, especially post-2020, we have such more, much more overt conversations about diversity and inclusion and opportunities. And unlike a lot of people I grew up with from the same community and socioeconomic background, these guys had these opportunities. Right. And they, and they scuppered them over things like women or because they wanted to be the best at football. Like real high school shit. Yeah. How do you feel about it now with some with some time from it or even just saying it here now? Because obviously you've got a hugely successful career. So do you feel like vindicated? Do you still feel some resentment towards it? Or do you feel better just talking about it now, just airing it? I feel better about talking about it now. Always talking always helps, especially when you talk to people who don't have a bias objectively about it. Because I think the other problem is that other people I would talk to or when you, and I think this is a, a very much a, can be a very human thing where if you are talking about your aspirations or trying to assert your greatness, other people hear that as arrogant to you being like, I'm going to be great at something unlike you. So right. it's always good to speak to people who uh, are individually focused because they're on their own journey, whereas other people who are forced in this need for comparison and in a much more adolescent mindset, you can't really talk to them in that way. So it's much more relaxing. But the last time I saw them, I think, yeah, it definitely affirmed to me that success is always the best revenge. Right. Because it can't, it, can't, it can't be argued with and, uh, you know, I'm doing with my life what I actually want to when not many people can say that. Revenge is a dish best served on stage and various TV programmes. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing uh, your old grudge with me, Dane. It feels good. I'm, I'm, I feel, I definitely feel it was cathartic. But most of all, Tiffany, I feel free. I, I, I'm really happy that it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't bother me like it used to at all. It's really strange how fame changes people's perceptions of you. Yes. And how, and how people really forget 
their transgressions against you when you're famous. <laughs> and, and, and almost being like, I'm glad we get on now. Oh, we get on now, do we? When did we have this truce? <laughs> when, did, yeah. when did we start getting on? Was it the bit where I didn't contact you for 20 yeah. years after I left school? <laughs> no, I was, oh, I don't recall signing this treaty, but okay. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It's time to apply some topical cream. Let's apply some balm to a stinging news story that's got you all het up. You can tell me what's bothering you. I can tell you what's bothering me. Tell me what's what's getting on your nerves at the moment. I feel like the same thing that's getting on my nerves is getting on your nerves. But for me, it's just uh, was the largest increase in interest rates since uh, in 30 years in the UK. Yep. Um, but for me, that's a smaller part of the larger part that's been bothering me is this almost willful ignorance or refusal for us to acknowledge the severity of the problem that is austerity measures that we're experiencing now. Yeah. It really, really pisses me off. Do you mean people online, because I know I've sort of talked about this, like who are kind of like, well, just wear a jumper. These people, these people who are pretending that yeah, these, basically... Uh, keep, keep calm and carry on people that regurgitate like war slogans. And yes. People are like, we did it during the war. You were fucking six during the war. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> yes. You don't remember. You're expecting me to draw a line of gravy on the back of my legs instead of wear tights in the winter. Yeah. Like, I don't know what. <laughs> I don't know how you think this is useful. I genuinely think that they come from some kind of bot farm because I think half the people yeah. that do this kind of stuff, it'd be like, oh, I used to fart on my brother to keep him warm. Yeah. Like, that's luxury, mate. That's luxury. Like, we, my, my Uncle Charlie had lumps of wood for teeth. He didn't complain. You know, like these mad people. Yeah, these are exactly, exactly <laughs> those people. You know, people are like, they should bring back uh, national service. But there wasn't national service when you was a child. So why don't you shut the fuck up? And, it's not, and nothing stops you from applying to the Ministry of Defence yourself. Yes. They're always hiring if it's so fun. Why don't you go and join the fuck? No, you need to bring back national service. What difference will that fucking make? Yes. <laughs> like, I'm, I, I'm, I'm basically the sick to death of centrists and, and uh, people that um, call themselves neoliberals who are so able to articulate the why a welfare state is terrible, but still can't explain to me why taxpayer money bailed out the banks and now they report bonuses and as preferential shareholders or majority shareholders, we don't receive a dividend as the people that build up these banks in the first place, which is just very, very basic economic free market theory, and none of them have an answer. Yeah, the, the trickle-down isn't trickling down to the uh, 
to the customers at the bank. <laughs> yeah, it never, and, even, and, even, and even if it did, we are majority shareholders. So at this particular point, we're now the big wigs. We're the, we're the money men. We're the, ones, the, we're the venture capitalists that have invested in these businesses that were too big to fail. And just by the same theory, as majority shareholders, if they're reporting a profit, we should be receiving a dividend before any of their other private investors. Any investor, any capitalist, any, any free market advocate understands that principle. But then they don't understand why we're being fucked over by banks. Well, and I think you might have made this point on your Twitter or Instagram of kind of talking about this sort of bailing the banks out, talking about the austerity measures and talking about, you know, like prof, prof, like the oil companies, how much how much money is just floating around. And yet we're kind of saying that we can't pay for school dinners for kids. It's yeah. in the same conversation. Like there's no money to do that. But there's money to um, there's no windfall taxes. Yeah, there's no windfall taxes, that, 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 and and no one is angry by it. And people who like who again are supposed to be advocates for like capitalism and free markets saw the biggest demonstration of socialism ever happen in favor of the banking industry, and they don't see that paradox because that's essentially what socialism is. Or the fact that people who don't pay their taxes are involved in conversations about defunding or divesting of funds for the police. And I'm like, but the police are paid for by taxes. Yes. That's socialist in nature. <laughs> so if you don't want to pay your tax, you shouldn't be involved in a conversation about how tax money is allocated because you don't pay it. It's again, very basic business theory that you clearly don't understand as a fucking Twitter economist. So you should shut up because you're stupid. <laughs> and this is the problem nowadays is that people say stupid things. Like you're not allowed to call people who voted for Brexit stupid. But they are stupid, Tiffany, because they voted for their own fucking demise economically. And it's like, maybe we're being too harsh. We're not being too harsh. You're stupid and you're a xenophobe and you fucked up your country because you were that determined to hang on to some misguided idea about British supremacy when we don't manufacture anything. You could have checked that before you voted. Yes, we stopped. We stopped that a long time ago, back in the 80s. And then it's even people like, what about our waters? How could the fuck can you own water? It doesn't stay in the same place. It's not static. The water that's on the coastline now was not the water that was there yesterday because water is constantly dynamic. So the idea of even owning water makes no fucking sense. How do you own water? How do you plant a flag in water? How do you draw a border on water? It's a very basic principle I don't get. Weirdly, now, now that we've left and we are experiencing or on the cusp of one of the worst uh, recessions we've had in recorded history... And we're not allowed to call people that voted for this stupid. Yeah. That's a free speech point, actually, when people are talking about free speech. A lot of these are the same people who then are like complaining about losing their freedom of movement. And you're like, you know, that was a two way. That was always a two way deal. That was always a two way deal. You like going to another country, uh, possibly for a conference or to do a job or what, you know, whatever it is, if you want to go and move, that's disappeared for you now. So it felt like it was such a, it wasn't an outward looking thing. It was an inward looking thing of going, no, let's, let's keep it all here. And, you know, British, champion British brands. And of course we should champion British brands, but there's certain things that we can't possibly make here that we do need to import, that we do need trade deals on. We are at the point where it's, it's, it's basically parody now. But just the fact that people voted for the demise of our own economy, where anyone could see that this was going to happen, because you'd, it'd be in a very basic way, you would understand that your healthcare industry or your, uh, I suppose, like even your livestock industry, these are all kept buoyant by immigrant labour. Everybody would know this. But if you didn't see that, when the Prime Minister said, make a decision, and we made it, and then he went, I quit my fucking job. 
that should have been a clue. It was a bad decision to make. Yes. If you went to a doctor for a biopsy and he was like, I have to remove one of your breasts, pick one. And you picked one. He was like, I'm no longer doing this operation. You'd be like, oh shit, I might be in trouble. If you were on a plane and he'd asked you, where would you like to land? He'd throw a Gatwick and you said Heathrow and you saw the pilot jumping out the fucking plane with his parachute. You'd be like, this is not going to end well. And somehow the penny has not dropped for the Brexit voters that the prime minister obviously left his post for a reason. And the reason is, is because he thought there is no way I'm going to be overseeing this sinking ship with people this stupid to vote against their own interests. I am now leaving. Right. And there's no consequences for being able to lie in order to get the result you wanted. You know, just the, you know, and Boris, then we brought him in, you know, the architect of this whole, the lies on the side of the bus, like, and down the line, there's been no consequences. Of course. A bus had a driver. The driver said left or right. We said right. The driver got up, got off the bus and ran away. (laughs) And then a drunk guy at the back was like, I'll I'll drive the bus. Let me drive it. I'll do it. And everyone was like, no, Boris, you're drunk. And he was like, come on and then someone's like let him do it he's a rogue the other drunk fucks at the back were like he's a rogue he's, you can have a drink of him that's fun and he drove the bus into a wall and now the bus is leaking petrol and it's very close to a spark plug and we have to all act like it's okay and there are people in the back with like compound fractures and they can't move and something like are you okay back there because there's a chair through your chest yeah i'm fine just keep driving the bus baby keep driving we're gonna get there all right england and so yeah we're basically over a cliff and people are like are we sure somebody else should drive the bus now and then another person was like i'll drive the bus and basically she fell out the bus while she was walking towards the steering wheel that's liz trust and now we have somebody who can't reach the pedals being like it's gonna be fine guys we should stop for mcdonald's and everyone's like mcdonald's that's very clearly a costa coffee rishi do you not know what mcdonald's looks like and he's like of course i do i'm one of you guys I'm really cool. And then a silver spoon fell out of his jacket. But he's like, don't worry about that silver spoon. I'm going to drive this bus. And that's where we are. That's a, a, a beautiful, I think that's a beautiful metaphor for where we are with Brexit. Thank you for sharing that, day. I really like that. <laughs> it's time for an unpopular opinion. Please share with me, Dane, a thing that everyone hates that you love or vice versa. Oh, I think I'll go for something that everyone loves but I hate, uh, which is probably easier for me. I f- kind of feel bad for saying it, but then I don't feel bad for saying it. Love Island. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to start my caveat by saying I love Ian Sterling and uh, long may his uh, prosperity on Love Island uh, continue. Uh, great guy. And one of the things that probably makes the whole thing much more bearable. But I just feel like we are constantly complaining about a decline or a decay in our social morality. And a loss of standards. And then we are showing this as a representation of love. <laughs> when it's like there's the homogenous appearance and build and themes of all the people that appear on Love Island. Where, you know, we're supposed to be having positive affirmations like beauty's only skin deep and there's someone out there for everyone and everybody needs love. And yet the only people that seem to be experiencing love for the duration of a season are people that all look... I just don't understand why people want to watch a program which is like porn without the fucking. <laughs> I've tried to watch clips of it before and I, I've had people kind of really put this, I've heard other people put this kind of like grandiose, like almost try to put a um, 
philosophical thing on why they watch it like yeah. like almost like as opposed to going a guilty pleasure because i i like to watch a, something that's a bit trashy that feels a bit trashy and we're okay with saying it's a bit trashy so instead yeah, it's like people want to say i want to see people who make me forget how shit my own love life is yes yeah uh, as opposed to going, it's a sociological experiment. And what you're getting here is <laughs> oh and, and going through <laughs> and giving me like Kant quotes with like, you know, and th- and this is like this or, you know, or Sartre, hell is other people. And really, this is what this is portraying on a, you're like, no, you just, you just want to see some tits and you want to see some abs. And that's yeah. okay to say that. Um, and, and accept that you're watching it on that level. I, I mean, here's what I find quite interesting is they're talking about doing an older Love Island which I am much more into as a vibe. I don't know whether it's 40 plus, but I'm like, yeah, get me in to host that one because I'm telling you, it will just be people listing their medical gripes. We're yeah. just going to have people showing off their, um, you know, their gout bracelets, talking about what, what indigestion tablets. But that would be good if it's normal people because then there's a lot of context to how people find coupling and accepting people for their flaws and warts and all. Whereas what I'm worried about is that it's going to be these kind of plastic cat people that you get in their 40s and stuff where there's just a point in time where people become have so 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 many repeated instances of cosmetic surgery. They're almost like a subspecies of human being themselves. Not me, human, dehumanise them, but it's like, you don't look younger. You just look like someone who's had cosmetic surgery. You look and different. maybe there's a, yeah, you, and, and you just look different. Maybe there's a, and there's a room for all of that, but I'm not sure what the subtext would be if everyone's got cosmetic surgery. And I, and I also, that's another reason I feel like, I'm opposed to something like Love Island because I think that encourages that because I find it very hard to take someone seriously when they're like crying over being betrayed but because their eyelashes are so big it's weighing down one of their eyes so they've got like that lazy eye they're like I can't believe they did this to me and I'm just like it's very hard to take someone seriously when their eyelashes are weighing their face down and stuff like that So I read a magazine story about a girl who'd applied to be on Love Island and they said no so she went away and spent £220,000 and this girl was broke on yeah. plastic surgery and went back and then they still went, no. <laughs> There's something quite sort of tragic, I suppose, in thinking the only route or the only way to get success now is, or the key to riches and Instagram influencing and all these other things, I suppose, uh, that door is opened with a key that says, if you modify your body enough to fit the ideal, which is constantly changing, it's constantly in flux. question for you, Tiffany, is that like, you know, when you contextualise that through along feminist lines... How does that appear? Because on the one hand, obviously feminism means that your gender doesn't predispose to choices. And if you want to have cosmetic surgery, you should be able to without being judged by a different standard to your male counterpart. But then by the same token, I would like to ask if people are receiving superior attention or status as currency nowadays on social media for how they look on something like Love Island, does that work against feminist um, endeavours? I think the principle of, because uh, we all have to participate in a society. So there's an interesting thing about, I think it was Jordan Peterson kind of going, you know, it, when women wear makeup, they are asking for attention. And, you know, my rebuttal to that would be a lot of the time when I put on makeup, I'm putting it on for other women. Yeah. <laughs> but also if people are doing it for work to feel like you have to present, you have to live in a society, you have to work in a, so I can try and pretend as much as I like that it doesn't matter if I look young or I look old or it doesn't matter if 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 uh, I've got makeup on my face or I don't have makeup on my face when ultimately it does because I want to work in this entertainment industry and business where all of that sort of stuff matters I reserve my judgment on people having any kind of 
work done because I do think that they're trying to get ahead in a society that rewards looking a certain way. That's my gripe with it as well, is that like, I, I'm sure people can enjoy the pageantry of it and stuff like that. But I think for people who don't really have a uh, frame of reference, it does send a message that, and I, and I think, and that's, I think that's it, with a lot of stuff overall is that it's sending this message that anything about you that you don't like, you can change with a scalpel. And I, and you know, I always used to hear like, like old male comics always have this joke when they would like be f- like a fat phobic joke when they're like, someone should be able to go to a restaurant and you should be able to say, oh, I think you've had enough. And we don't really say the same thing when it comes to like cosmetic surgery where people, for whatever reason, are trying to use a physical solution for what is clearly a psychological problem. Yes. And, you know, we don't hold up people who are supposed to be doctors and surgeons who have taken a Hippocratic oath to for them to not Do say to somebody. Yeah maybe this is a problem that a therapist should be able to help you with or you need some kind of catharsis as opposed to having Botox here and there. Love very clearly is one of the more emotive terms that we have within our language on a global scale. And when it precedes stuff, I think, you know, it gives people very uh, skewed expectations of it. And I think that we need to stop, I don't know, maybe TV execs and just the industry in general really need to stop mining for how much more they can derive from the concept of love or coupling in the time where human beings are already becoming isolated or have experienced some of the most isolation they've ever had with the pandemic, uh, with the presence of the metaverse and social media in general. There's so much ways we're becoming disconnected. So I think trivializing the idea of love and coupling or baiting people with the idea of love and coupling, I think we're going down a very slippery slope. <laughs> It is time for a historic beef. This is where we look at historical arguments, maybe offer some solutions. And uh, this week we're looking at the feud between, I say feud, disagreements between William Faulkner and Ernest Hemingway. So it's a literary feud and I will give you the crux of it because I feel that this is an interesting part of the discussion, I guess, for myself and Dane to have. And and there's back and forth and uh, between the two of them. But in April 1947, William Faulkner was invited to the University of Mississippi. And in the midst of a Q&A session, he was asked to name the five most important contemporary writers. Here's what he said. He said, Thomas Wolfe, he had much courage and wrote as if he didn't have long to live. And then two, William Faulkner. Three, Dos Passos. Four, Ernest Hemingway. He has no courage. He has never crawled out on a limb. He has never been known to use a word that might cause the reader to check with a dictionary to see if it's properly used. To which Hemingway's rebuttal was, Paul Faulkner, does he really think big emotions come from big words? He thinks I don't know the $10 words. I know them all right, but there are older, simpler and better words and those are the ones I use. And then insinuated that Faulkner was an alcoholic whose talent as of late had been lost on the source. So I (laughs) guess this is about kind of the crux of the argument, I guess, is about what you think your job is as a writer. Yeah, it seems very clear uh, only from experience that maybe these are two uh, writers that see some semblance of themselves in their perceived rivals. Right. And by that token, it's uh, they're projecting some kind of insecurity, which could either be the, based on the concept of more like an artistic rivalry. Yes. Where, you know, they're not be, they don't feel like be, even though they may be viewed the same way, they're not they're not meeting one another at the same uh, creative level or artistic level. And um, it could be something as small as someone someone's probably read one of their manuscripts and be like, reminds me of something Hemingway would say. Or oh, this is quite Faulkner. And they've gone, what? Uh, yes. Me? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a small bruise on the ego. Because obviously, 
they've very, you know his uh, Faulkner's included Hemingway in his uh, list of top uh, you know literary artists but it's just those, um, it's, it's very clear that uh, these guys probably need to collaborate more than they need to oppose one another well, interestingly, for me, like the, the the story that comes out of this is a bit of a nightmare because we're comics. We've all riffed something in the room, mm. and then never, and then gone. I'm never saying that out loud again. So, in fairness to Faulkner, he he sort of called himself the goat, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but then was told that the the students wouldn't be taking notes, and it was reported later on. So, it was, I think it was something he said in the minute, which then prompted Hemingway to have a comeback, and then that this relationship of 30 years plus is sort of characterized by competition and comparison and criticism and begrudgingly admitting respect for each other, but hesitant to offer praise. And apparently I think uh, it was suggested to Faulkner that Hemingway give a foreword for, for one of his books. And he was like, this would be like a horse in the middle of a race, stopping and reporting on the progress of another horse. Like he's like, we're in the same race. Yeah, exactly. And that makes sense. And that does make sense. Like as an artist, I can definitely see that. Um, but at, you know, but at the same, I guess so. He you know sees them having the same trajectory as a, as opposed to anyone having like a superior position. But um, it seems much more of because it doesn't seem to be anyone directly sabotaging anyone's career. Other than that, I think it's a, it's a relatively healthy rivalry, and there are some people depending on how they tend to contextualize their work. Uh, you know, a lot of people believe that art. What's it? The saying is that iron sharpens iron, right? And I think that, and I think that might be the case here because there's there's no. Uh, Real attacks on their characters. They're actually pushing each other. Yeah, exactly. They're actually pushing each other to be greater. So, you know, you've got Joe Fraser and Muhammad Ali. You've got these kind of like people who are at the top of their game, like kind of going, if I nudge you, you'll nudge me. And then that makes the sport better or that makes the writing better and that makes the novel. Because they both won, I think, like Nobel, you know, prizes and they had a huge amount of plaudits throughout their career obviously what Faulkner's trying to do is trying to impress and I always find within comedy if I'm trying to impress then I'm kind of losing the room a little bit whereas if I'm trying to connect and be real that's the best version of my comedy so I I sort of see Hemingway that way if Hemingway I feel is like going it from a point of view of going I want to connect and I don't want to do this thing where I insert myself into the writing to go I am cleverer than you yeah. And here is this word that I'm putting in. It's going to take you out of the story immediately to go, well, I don't know what that means. Yeah. Whereas Faulkner's obviously thinks his job, I guess, is to challenge the reader yeah. and to question. I suppose there's a bit of both at play you could have. And, and that's it. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes because one emphasizes one more over the other, it's hard for it to see the, the merit of that. But um, I think ultimately the key is for both of them to continue to be dynamic in terms of innovating on it anyway. And by having a critique with each other of the work itself, rather of their characters, I think it's still quite a, a healthy rivalry. It's like, I found that like, you know, Rick James didn't like Prince. Right. But there's no world in which we would ever want either of their music not to be present. Yes. Yeah. That's the catalyst or the fuel to cover them to both keep innovating in their own particular ways. Sometimes that competition is healthy and, and it's more of a, iron sharpens iron as opposed to this need for anyone to have a particular monopoly over an art form it comes down to as I said going back to love is that this is more of an experience than something you can own and it's the same thing with like creative energy is that you get to harness it at particular points or junctures in your life and then you can use that to uh, fuel your own creating your own aesthetics but you'll never you'll never own it like even the uh 
Tiffany Stevenson consciousness is a combination of your influences and your experiences and people that have inspired you and that comes together to make something new as well and I, I'm I'm exactly the same like I am like an amalgam of all of my experiences and the people I've looked to up as well and I think any artist or anybody who wants to have the same kind of positive impact on an art form should be open to knowing that you can provide that for somebody else Faulkner and Hemingway together the, I guess the endeavour is to have an impact on people and in print at a time when they may no longer be around and that is the ultimate that's, that's the thing overall and I think you know there's some insecurities in that way in which like maybe Faulkner projected onto Hemingway with kind of like you don't want your legacy to be somewhat reduced by not applying yourself but it'd be but it's more of a reflection of themselves really yeah uh, I think that's a nice way to close it is the mirror. Sometimes the things that irritate you or upset you in other people are because they are qualities that you recognise in yourself. Yeah. We have one last section to go, which is Angry Aunt, which is where we get our listeners to send in their problems. We've had this problem sent in from Popcorn, James Pond. He said he's fed up of being constantly checked on by work, fed up of an interim manager parroting everything his boss has said to him having already discussed the project with his boss. It's overbearing and making me ill. It's how I imagine being watched by the SS must have felt. You logged on at 10.30 today, according to our records, when you said you were working from home, when I did mention that I had a doctor's appointment to HR that morning. So this person, James, is clearly very, very unhappy in his in his job. Now, my job as an angry aunt is to, uh, in the first instance, take their side. So like, fuck them, James, leave. Uh, and then we need to be reasonable and kind of say in the current climate uh, with the economic situation being what it is, is there anything that we feel that we can we can offer to to help James here, either be it funny or genuine advice? Um, I think I think we can offer both. First of all, I think you're correct as an angry aunt that they do tend to fuck off. And I think people we don't realise the power that exists within fuck off, particularly within a corporate environment. Um, I... Uh, Obviously, consider I was talking about things like school. Uh, I think one of the frustrations I always had with school was that recognizing that a large part of it is trying to uh, manipulate you into uh, quelling whatever rebellious spirit you have, your ability to think critically, getting used to creating an environment where you have to respect a hierarchy which is not based on meritocracy, having to raise your hand to uh, speak. And these are things that we carry into uh, industrial environments, and it's very hard for us to unlearn them. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of power in fuck off. Um, when I left my last job before I started doing comedy, uh, I didn't realise how powerful it is when you tell people, fuck this, I quit. Because even though you have to work for your notice, as soon as you remove the power from people to, you know, hang the sword of Damocles above you with the threat of dismissal, they can't really do much after that. And uh, yes. I'd, I've never felt so free. And even physically, I could feel a weight coming off my shoulders when I was like, do you know what? Fuck this shit, I quit. Because the first time you say it, It'll make saying it easier every single time. And the power, there's a lot of power in no and being able to walk away, especially in environments where people are not used to hearing that. Um, what you tend to find as well within these environments is that pedagogues and middlemen are brought in because your leaders or superiors may not want to have the confrontation, but they can find people that are weak enough and are insecure enough about their own position that they can act uh, on their behalf as like vassals in the same way that we know that a lot of police officers are criminals but they will happily uh, enforce laws that aren't necessarily moral or they, that they understand. Well, they don't abide by. They don't abide by themselves. <laughs> and also to avoid accountability because it's, like, it's, very, it's very easy to, uh, when you are in a position where you have to follow orders and do so at the behest of what you perceive to be a ruling class, you don't have to have the accountability for it. 
So, and I think it's the same thing with like middle management is that they may not understand what they're telling you to do, but they understand that by having you do it, it means that the light is not shone on them for them to be accountable or for the relevance of their own positions. So pushing back against that can be more valuable than you think it is. Like telling someone to go fuck themselves at work, it seems like it's unthinkable, but trust me, most people are not used to hearing that and they will have no idea how to respond. So you, if someone says, you're supposed to log in at 10.30, well, I was busy. So what the fuck do you want to do? Because it's either I'm here or I'm not. And I would say to people all the time, especially where you've said that it makes you ill, no one from work is coming to your funeral. Any person in a position of employ, go and look in any open plant office, any office building, any commercial building. There are no statues for effective employees. You will not be remembered. You will not be celebrated. There will not be a bust of yours in the economics or employment museum. There's no employment museums. They won't remember your artifacts. They won't be like, this keyboard belonged to the best salesman that we ever had. You you are as yes. transient and you are as interchangeable and expendable as any other person. And as soon as you realize that, then you should act accordingly and use work. Don't let work use you. Yes, yes, I agree. I think where he says it's overbearing and making me ill, I think you should say that to the interim manager. I think you should be like, I've already explained this to my boss. I've already had the discussion. So it's actually quite stressful to me. So if you want me to take time off work from stress, if you want the doctor to sign me off with stress, it's making me ill. I had a doctor's appointment this morning. So if you could not do this, it would be great. And I think actually just saying that, like in a really plain way, kind yeah, of going, yeah, exactly. you're making me ill. This is over bet. I'm doing my job. And I'm being repeatedly asked if I'm doing my job and how I'm doing my job after I'm reporting to someone above you. This just like feels unnecessary. So I had a doctor's appointment. That's why I logged on late. I'm probably about to be diagnosed with stress. So let's see if you want to continue in this vein. I'll go over their head and say to their management, you keep this person working for me, I'm going to leave or I'm going to have to get signed up for stress and I'm going to fucking sue you guys. Like, I feel like a lot of people, they are, they become so... We talk about identity politics and there's a lot of corporate identity politics where people will hide behind titles and stuff and we have been uh, inculcated to concede under these titles when these are just regular people. And I say to people all the time, don't let somebody who can't control their own fucking child tell you what to do. Yes. Well, and also all of this corporate, like, kind of mental health washing. Yeah. You know, like all the, like, you know, we're hearing, like, we, we really want to talk about mental health. But then when someone actually says to you, you're damaging my mental health, they don't want to hear it. Exactly. So it feels like, it feels like if you're going to, if you're going to benefit from that or like try and get some goodwill by doing a bit of performativeness around mental health, then have a look at your company's social medias and see what they say about all of this kind of stuff. And then just bring that back and go, oh, look, you tweeted during Mental Health Awareness Week that you are very uh, (laughs) behind. This had this many likes. Let's see if you can actually back that up by treating your workers um, as they deserve to be treated. Yeah, and it's not not that that. easy to fire somebody. If your biggest, and and, and I'd say to anyone who's experiencing like any kind of workplace angst or being bullied or marginalised at work, like the pandemic alone should have taught you, even if you do work hard and turn up every day and have perfect attendance, Anything external can happen which will prevent you from doing your job properly. And by that same token, because there are some factors at your hand, the only thing you can control is the effort you put in. There's nothing else you can do as a result of that. If you could, you could you should run your own company if you are able to control all those factors. There's only so much you can do. Like everyone's working hard and working hard as, as hard as they can. Because of the fuck up of your own government, now we're all dealing with high interest rates. Even though we've done nothing, we could all be working as hard as possible. Also, the other thing I'd say to people, if it's any kind of consolation, this learned behaviour that your worth is defined by how hard you work, like, fuck that shit. You've got a prime minister who couldn't do the job, 
another prime minister who couldn't do their job. And now we have another prime minister who can't even do their job. And that's the, for me, that's the real trickle-down effect that we are seeing at the highest echelons of our society, incompetence that has resulted from lies, corruption, nepotism. And so by that token, and the example that's being set for you on a larger national level, there is no company in this country which has a right to scrutinise the efforts made by most regular human beings going to work nowadays. That's how I see it. The fucking prime minister didn't do his job properly. Who has the fucking right to tell anybody now, you should work harder? Why should I? Because if I keep <laughs> slacking off, I could be prime minister. Yeah. I just have to be incompetent enough to run the UK. There you go. A great way of putting it. Like I could be incompetent enough to run the UK. They're not even being democratically elected. Like just the whole basis for work and stuff nowadays and how it exists. Like even now, it's like even kids nowadays as well. You can work hard as you can. Your grade, depending on where you live, will be determined by an algorithm. So this <laughs> idea now that we're still suggesting that like, you know, prosperity is a function of the amount of effort you're putting in. I'm afraid that's no longer the case. It should be. But because of the people at the top, they've subverted that whole idea. And that's why we're coming apart at the seams. So for me, James, I say start. That's when people say, you know, act, act locally, think globally. If there's some idiot pedagogue middleman telling you what to do, be like, fuck yourself. I promise you, they won't be able to do anything. Act locally. And the act locally is start looking around for other jobs. Yeah, you'll find one. They're going yeah. around all the time. Yeah. You'd have to be in a job for long enough either. So, you know, you could do a month and probably get like a golden, a golden parachute like our former prime minister. Like it's all, it's all a joke, James. Don't take it too seriously, man. Like none of these people are coming to your funeral. Thank you for sharing your grudges, your gripes, your beefs with us today. Hopefully um, getting them off your chest has provided some catharsis and uh, we feel a little bit better about the world going back out into it. Do you have anything to plug? First of all, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I think it's great. It's been very cathartic and... Uh, even if you say it's a, a form of therapy, I think any time someone's listening with an empathetic ear to someone else is therapeutic. And if we did more of that, we probably wouldn't need as much psychiatric help anyway. So thanks again. Um, plugs. Um, uh, my own podcast, Dame Matthews Questions Everything, on which Tiffany has been a guest. So please yes, do feel free to right. check it out, guys. Um, and also I have a web series called The Eighth Set of Blackness, which you can check out, and uh, Dane's Dictionary. Um, but yeah, go on all my good socials, my link tree, there's a lot of content on there. I said podcast, uh, clips, and they'll also look out next year for my uh, show, The Chocolate Chip, which I'll be putting out on uh, £800 given up uh, details to follow. I would like to plug my tour, which is next year. It starts in late April. All of the dates will be up on my website, tiffstevenson.co.uk. There's also a mailing list there if you want to join and find out uh, about other projects that I've got going on, such as Men She Wrote. And also, finally, just come find me on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy this podcast, come find us on the socials. Thank you for joining me, Dane. Pleasure. You can listen to other programmes from The Bugle, including The Bugle, The Last Post, Tiny Revolutions and The Gargle, wherever you find your podcasts. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart 
A better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.